I've used a lot of metaphors and, and images of the five or six thousand years of um, Polynesian navigation of the Pacific. They seem so potent um, to one's spiritual journey. Uh, so as you remember um, the one teaching from the Micronesian master Mao to the young Hawaiian just beginning navigator Nainoa was keep a vision of the island in mind and you won't lose the way. And so the inspiration of the goal of practice that we need to revisit at times for continuing, for uh, collecting again the courage and confidence and devotion to the practice in the bigger picture of our lives in the immediate day-to-day -day, uh, retreat time, moment-to-moment -moment retreat time. And the journey itself, of course, is all, always a mystery. You don't know what's going to happen. It's the nature of turbulent systems on our planet. Calm seas, any number of dozens of, 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 of stormy seas, waves, currents, um, wind, rain, clouds, blocked vision. Remember, they navigate without instruments. They watch the cycle of stars, the moon, the sun, the horizon, uh, cloud colors that often reflect uh, on their bellies, the greenery of, of an island some hundreds of miles away, uh, even the color of sunsets and sunrises, that, that attunement through their senses, all six senses, the five physical senses, and the, in the mind's heart sense, particularly the intuitive uh, sense of guidance. Likewise, our, spirit, our spiritual practice, to keep a vision of the goal in mind, even if the goal is itself is somewhat a mystery. You know, what is beyond life and death? What is beyond our personalities? Retreat, practice, daily life, practice, mindfulness, metta, compassionate practice, all these practices help shape, inform, renew, transform our personality so that we're happier people, more loving, more centered, that our sense of ourselves is, is grounded in, in joy, compassion, kindness, and so forth. So it's a necessary part of the practice. If, if we don't find happiness in, in in the, in the stepping stones of the teachings, then it's really difficult for the transcendent part, you know, the aspect of going beyond personality and beyond life and death. The goal itself may be somewhat of an instinct, more than a clarity, since it is in the unborn, in the unconditioned, not to do with things arising and passing away. And the journey itself is a mystery. A, a couple of years ago, uh, Nainoa was visiting at, at our house in Honolulu. And uh, the previous, it was a spring, the previous fall was uh, the last long journey he's taken. You know, now he's more in education, environmental education, and and using the 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 imago, the image, the power of the hokulea and the other double-hull sailing vessels as a means, as a metaphor uh, to, to reawaken not only Polynesian but planetary awareness of, of caring for the planet, the, an, an eco-consciousness and a spirituality. So he's much more in, evol involved now on the educational basis. He took this last journey because it was the culmination of the 25 years of sailing and 90,000 nautical miles. And the completion was the 
the last leg of what's called the, the Polynesian Triangle. The, the link in the north of Hawaii above the equator, south to Aotea, our New Zealand, and then east to uh, Rapa Nui, or what's known as um, Easter Island. Um, it was appropriate that this last journey be last. It was the most formidable, most, most dangerous, even the best time of the year, unpredictable winds that they had to sail into and, uh, and use all their years of experience, attunement through the senses to the lawfulness behind the turbulent systems, you know, reading the map of the turbulent systems when we're quiet enough, just the way we do when we watch the initially seeming chaos of mind and body. We start to attune that there's, there's a, a rhythm, a pattern, the law of dhamma, the changing nature of it. And, uh, uh, and the in, in intuitive part, they needed that 25 years, you know? Uh, and it was all old hands the women and men who had sailed many previous journeys. And there were two or three navigators, not just Nainoa. And they waited, you know, for, for the right moment. He said it was the most spiritual of all their journeys in, in 25 years. Uh, and that they, they, they it was, much of it was in silence. Much of it was just like nonverbal communication among them, you know, rather than talking a lot and trying to figure things out. They went inward and used more of that intuitive capacity than they ever had before, all these veterans, and got along better. Initial journeys, you know, on a boat, imagine 19 people, women and men, and, you know, it's, there were some real rough times in the earlier years. They got along. There was a harmony, and you know they had to sail in these uh, zigzag motions way to the northeast of Rapa Nui, and and um, until they felt it was time to come about and aim to where they sensed the island was in order to pull it out of the sea, as they say, and. Previous journeys that had also been an excitement upon approach and first discovery, you know, a, a thrill, a, 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 a exuberance, and he said, uh, you know, inclusive in the in the spiritual nature of this last journey, you know, as they neared, the, the youngest navigator, a relative of the Micronesian master Mao, uh, who had started learning this art when he was three years old, look off into the distance and he'd see what looked like a black cloud. And Nainoa, the oldest of the navigators, the most experienced, and the next assistant, they looked and they said, that's a black cloud. And this young, young man from Micronesia who had not sailed as much but had Sort of been given the transmission from from Mao, the Micronesian master. He he said that's Rapa Nui. And I know said no, it's not. And the uh, and the other assistant said no, it's not. And they sailed on and he sailed on, and the young young man said that's Rapa Nui. You know that's it. And you know still it wasn't. It wasn't didn't set right, you know. And I know it's kind of high strung, and, and 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 very inward and quiet and shy. You know, he just this is sort of is a kind of a perfectionist attitude to things, and he wants to be right and is concerned with safety and concerned with doing it right. And uh, and in the meantime, three month retreats going on. This is several years ago, and uh, every day they they write a report and put it and seal it in this plastic container and throw it in the ocean and uh, had a beacon. And the, the, the guarding boats that gave them no information at all about where they were and where they were going right around would pick up that information. It'd be typed in, it would be in the, 
a satellite and I'd get it in my computer, <laughs> you know, the same day. So I was getting reports every Dharma talk saying how they were doing, you know, <laughs> radical. And, and including this, this last day. And, and finally everyone else was convinced and one of the, one of the elder uh, crew members, you know, just went over to Nainoa in the, in the back, in the, uh, uh, on the gunnels in the back, kind of searching, straining his eyes, and just put his hand on the shoulder and said, brother, we're here. You know, and I know, let go. And, and soon that black cloud turned into the 1,600-foot mountain uh, of, of, of Rapa Nui. And they, and, they, and they sailed in with more of a calm, and more of a deep appreciation, more of a gratitude, tears, equanimity, you know, rather than the excitement of all the other previous journeys. Uh, the first time they went to Tahiti and and half of Tahiti was in the port to greet them. And, and this was more s solemn and, and powerful, he said. <clears throat> Again, I think, a good metaphor for our practice, because we move through many spaces of initial difficulty and then places of, 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 of uh, exuberance and hap you know, uh, different kinds of happiness. We begin to discover the, the, the spiritual or dhamma pleasures of practice, uh, joy and rapture and contentment and, 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 and finally more of, you know, uh, as we settle in, an equanimity, a greater kind of trust in the process. A cool awe, you know, was what they felt when they spotted uh, Rapa Nui. And uh, this practice, too, keeps unfolding at first, maybe more of a thrilling awe. But gradually, you know, as, as our hearts stay more cool in the midst of some of the weather systems internally, some of the heat, some of the fire, some of the confusion, we still find this place of, of, of coolness. And at the same time, the awe of everything, you know, that our entire experience uh, from which we're not separate, you know, in this mind-body universe um, is, is, so is so extraordinary when seen with the eyes of wisdom, seen with the eyes of clarity. So I, I want to talk about some uh, of the these places of happiness that we can find in the journey. They relate to what are classical stages of insight. I'm going to talk about four of them. And they also can translate in varying degrees to what we bring back out into the world uh, as these insights deepen, as we revisit them again and again and again over the space of a retreat, over the space of many retreats, over the space of our lifetime. Happiness of solitude, happiness of concentration, happiness of contentment, happiness of wisdom and equanimity. These are the four, the ones I'm going to uh, speak to, and they relate to insights which I'm just going to give a general sense of because we each evolve in our practice uh, individually. Some people, some people practice kind of matches nearly classical to, you know, the way the texts describe these. Uh, others don't, you know, others kind of move through in different ways and in unique ways. Uh, but generally the, the insights are the same. They're seeing the Dhamma. They're seeing the truth of things. And generally, the kinds of happiness that emerge are, are the same for all of us. The happiness of solitude, our uh, seclusion, it begins the first, begins at any time we sit in meditation at a retreat, you know, it begins those first days where we all, you know, subscribe to a culture of non-harming, the sila, to silence, 
it develops as the concentration gets deeper and we feel more uh, 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 more protected from the constant onslaught of, of hindrances. Uh, and it's the beginning of true insight. There are actually other insight stages that precede this happiness of, of, of solitude. But this is, uh, this is where we actually feel and allow some of the gritty stuff that happens. You know, the, the, the pain and frustration we feel in our body, the antsiness, sometimes the, the feeling of there's a needle, you know, in every pore or a flea, you know, all over, you know, we're covered in poison ivy or poison oak or something. And we sit with that, you know, and it's miserable. And we get really discouraged. And yet, we can't hear enough that this is an aspect of, of this early part of insight practice. I've said that Mahasi Sayadaw has spoken about a healthy despair. You know, and healthy fear that, that yes, of course, we come up against the initial realities of, of, of dukkha, you know, of discomfort, of stress in the body and the mind. And this is where we first start experiencing it as the mind grows uh, more in seclusion and solitude and distractions become less. You know, we, we go off less and less to the, the, the places that we go when we like to reside and rest in denial, <laughs> where we, we don't want to feel what's happening. Fantasy, you know, intellectualization, um, moving around and you know, avoiding the moment. And, and all the ways we do that, all the ways we resist the pain or resist the difficulty or seek to get more concentrated, the very process of which prevents that concentration. Intuitive understanding, which is an insight, which comes in this, this solitude, in this seclusion, uh, can arise in different ways. Often it's a lightning flash of intuitive knowing. Often we don't even know we've had it. That is, there's no follow-up with the discursive or reflective mind. Something just shifts, and we feel it, and we're just staying with what's happened. You know, in, like Upandita, Saida, his, his sort of demand of a very precise way of reporting experience, he'll see that. He'll see that a student has had an insight, even when the student does not. Often we do know something happens, and there's a sudden shift and release of energy and good feeling, and there's some thought or reflection, which is natural. And we encourage the, the knowing of that so that we don't get caught in continuing to think about it and let go, come back, anchor again in your anchor, the body, the breath, awareness itself, whatever. There's two mental qualities that excel in this first insight stage and happiness, the happiness of solitude. And these two qualities, I think, were spoken of earlier in the Pali, Vitaka Vichara. Vitaka being the, the, the connecting awareness, the awareness that connects with experience in the moment, and the vichara, the sustaining awareness, the awareness that immerses and stays and feels the experience from within the experience. So, for example, if you're following, we're following the breath, that initial application of awareness that touches the breath and tries to feel the breath from within the breath, not the head, the sustaining, the vichara, the sustaining awareness just completely immerses, becomes one with the breath. And there's just the experience of the sensations of tension or tightness or bloating and fullness and the knowing of that. And then the release, relaxa relaxation, softness, and the knowing of that. Any experience. 
any sound, a sensation, a thought, any emotion, connecting. You know, connecting awareness that feels the fear in the moment. And sustaining awareness is not identifying with the fear, but feeling the quality, the texture of it in the mind or correlate sensations in the body. Knows that it shuts off. It disconnects one from experience. It feels contracting. Uh, but the, the immersion and the staying with it, we actually start to see that the fear are just fear moments. There's space around it. There's the energy and awareness and, and a capacity to feel it. When we identify with it, can't. We can't feel it mindfully. Can't know it. We don't approach it compassionately. We approach it uh, either with resistance or intensity to get push it away. So connecting and sustaining is really helpful because that's how, the, how our awareness gets protected from the hindrances that resist, that want something else to happen, gets bored with what's happening, doesn't want what's happening to happen, gets sleepy with what's happening, are anxious or doubtful. There's less proliferation in this insight stage where we feel the solitude and the, the beauty, the happiness of that solitude, uh, the peace that begins to come of that solitude, even with the discomfort, even with all those antsy and knowing uh, sensations of body and mind. The, there's a, a sense of protected environment that, that our awareness container, our retreat in container, is becoming uh, safer, so more trusting. Uh, there's an underlying sense of trust, not in thoughts, but just like the body, emotional body, mental body, just begins to trust that what's coming up is okay. It's exactly what we need to feel. However deep, however old, however nonverbal, however potentially you know, offsetting, confusing, there's still this sort of grit and gumption from the vitaka vichara, the connecting, sustaining awareness that's able to be with it. The, the insights, of course, have been mentioned a number of times. They're, s they're the same throughout practice. So this is the initial real taste of anicca, of change, of impermanence, where non-intellectual, and it's not just an appreciation that, that things are always changing, that they arise and pass away. A deeper connecting with the, the very velocity of which that's happening, that there's a radical dissolution every moment of the stream of body and mind sensations. There are little glimpses of that. Yeah, that's true. This is really true. What I've heard before, what I've reflected on before, or what I've read before, it's really true. I, 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 I think I just had a glimpse of it. You know, or if not, if we don't have that thought, there's still a shift. There's still that a moment of non-intellectual, direct awareness connecting with this Dhamma law. And by the way, it's the same Dhamma law. Just three facets, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. They're just different facets of the nature of the truth. The, 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 the Dukkha is the, a, is the deepest understanding of Anicca. You know, everything changing, there's nothing stable, nothing to hold on to, nothing reliable to stand on, nothing lasting. You know, and we, s we start with the beginning of sensing that uh, the, a basic insecurity. But there's wisdom there at the same time, so we don't feel as so intimidated by it. Although at times we do, we know that, that fear, that, gee, everything's changing, and we grasp at to an image of ourselves, or thoughts, or memories, and conceptual ways that we hold life together. 
Then another time, same thing. It falls away for a minute. And there's this kind of vastness of insecurity, and, but a greater wisdom can hold it a little longer. That's dukkha, the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness, that a hint that we're not going to find happiness, deep and true, uh, non-dependent happiness, in phenomena, conditioned phenomena, in this mind-body sense universe. And likewise, there's no control. The uncontrollability of it is the anatta, the emptiness, the selfless nature. No one to whom it's happening, that's making it happen, that can change it, redirect it, rechannel it. So kind of a real surrender to the process nature. Anatta is that everything is process. Everything is a process, and following the laws of Dhamma, our body, you know, we can't make ourselves unsick when we're feeling unwell. If we feel a tremendous flood of emotion from some trigger, we, you know, short of unhealthy suppression and denial or indulgence and being lost and identified, we can't control that. So there's an, an acceptance that begins to develop when we see these three facets of the truth, of Dhamma, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, the emptiness. This, too, increases that, that healthy sense of solitude. It doesn't feel like we're disconnected. In fact, just the opposite. We begin to feel more connected with everything. The solitude just means there's less distraction in the mind. There's a peacefulness, there's a, a unity that begins to be felt in the body and in the mind. Faith here increases. Faith or confidence. Now, I can do it. When we have these insights, there's something really empowering about it. This isn't just what I heard or read. It's true. It was just felt. It was just a felt experience. And that faith generates energy, inspiration, more mindfulness, more concentration and wisdom. They all rest upon the other. The happiness of concentration is, is um, reflective of the early or tender insight stage called arising and passing away. Arising and passing away. And that's when, not just through our reflective mind, but again through this deep intuitive watching of the weather systems, turbulent systems of the mind and body, it's really evident. Uh, and we, we, we tune in to this nature of, of arising and passing away uh, f as a result of the mind getting more unified. Concentration means collectedness or unification of the body and the mind. The way in which we feel more connected is a sense of dropping in. Sometimes it's even a physical sense. Sometimes even like all of a sudden there's distracting sounds. It suddenly gets quieter even though those sounds may still be out there, they're not pulling the attention away. There's just something that happens and the whole mind-body seems to have connected on a deeper level. Here, the, the connecting awareness and sustaining awareness, they recede. They become innately um, unified with our knowing mind. Moment to moment, mindful knowing. And what emerges here is the Pali word, in the Pali word piti, means rapture. Begins as a joyous interest. Begins as joy or joyous interest. It's kind of like that awe. Wow. This experience is really something, you know? Experience period. Experience of the breath. You know, when the concept or idea of it falls away and we're feeling 
this amazing stream of sensations, sounds, thoughts, the mind stream, increases the sense of awe, increases the interest, the quality of interest, and it, it can evolve into deep rapture, even ecstasy. There's longer periods where the hindrances stay away, you know, more minutes in which the hindrances are attacking us. And, and the sense that they're coming up against some kind of buffer. You know, there's a yielding. There's this like push in a bit, but then some energy, some awareness energy keeps them out here a little more. So that sense of protection and yes, desire, aversion, all the other hindrances appear, but they also disappear. And we're more aware of that they're disappearing because we're less identified here. This, this quality of piti, of interest and, and rapture, keeps the mind, the awareness, riveted in the moment, whatever the experience is. There's a brightness to the mind, a clarity of mind that starts to, to, to pick up. You know, we start to experience the body as not our idea, our, our interpretation of the body, but from within the body and as it is. This morning, your questions about, you know, what's that, what's molecular experience? And I was saying it's just really the subtle elements, subtle temperature, subtle texture, subtle vibrations. That's, that's it. That's what the body is. And, and when, with the mind, you know, there's grosser ones and then there's times when it's more, more subtle. At this stage when there's more concentration and we're experiencing this happiness of concentration, there's more of a peace and this interest turns into moments of, of actually rapture where the sensations themselves and mental states are lifted, elevated. We feel good. It's also a trap. I said it's the early stage of arising and passing. The mind gets bright, there's clarity, and we can get attached to that brightness, that clarity, that joy, that rapture, and get enchanted. Wow, this is cool. This is far out. In one of the Buddhist sermons, he talks about the wandering without, stopping within. The wandering without we're really familiar with, you know. It's just a mind that keeps going off and uh, either being distracted, you know, out of resistance to the present moment or in seeking pleasure and happiness but not the pleasure and happiness of Dhamma, not the Dhamma pleasures and happiness. Goes out seeking pleasant happiness in sights and sounds and sensations and mental thoughts and, and fantasies and so forth. That's where we get lost in the mind that way. There's not the protection yet. So as that protection of solitude, seclusion comes and, and the greater protection of Concentration comes, we, we start to get a real taste with this piti, with this interest growing to rapture, to ecstasy. Uh, that's what can be known as stopping within. We think we've got it. This is it. I can't wait to run to my teacher and tell her or him all that's happening in the in the in the in fact in the commentaries of Buddhist Buddhist Pali, they talk it they talk about it as the rolling up the meditation mat stage. <laughs> done is what had to be done. Not even my teacher probably knows how amazing this is, you know, and that's what that's what this deep, innate birthright joy can do. It just sort of blows all the the denial fuses, you know, and resistant fuses away. 
and we feel such an intense, intimate connection with ourselves, others, the universe. It's powerful, you know, it's beautiful. It's real, a real Dhamma pleasure, a real rapture and bliss, one that we deserve. It is a healing one. It overturns a lot of that unworthiness, self-loathing. I don't deserve this, inadequacy, not good enough. You know, this is like a, a wow place. And it's there's described five different kinds of rapture. Minor rapture, where you get little like goosebumps in the back of your head or your hair stands up. You get a little thrill. Ooh, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> Momentary rapture is the second one, and it's like a sudden lightning flash through the whole body, a jolt of 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 pleasure. Sometimes it's even disturbing. PT can be disturbing. PT, PT can often be experienced as not pleasant. It can move the body all around in ways that we're not used to. So there are periods of this stage that are kind of uncomfortable, but it's actually an insight and it's actually still PT, even if we don't feel it, you know. It matures, it grows more. There's the third kind of PT that deepens or matures. Descending or showering PT, joy rapture. Imagine standing under a waterfall. When on my way to Burma and on my way out of Burma, especially in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, there would be these really long stopovers in Tokyo, five or six hours. And so I'd take a train into the first town, Narita. And the, uh, some uh, uh, United agent told me about these baths, and the Japanese baths, and went in, paid so much for the whole day, and there were a, a good dozen different experiences there, you know. Uh, uh, warm water, hot water, searing water, uh, water with some kind of, look like tea, but some kind of herb water. And, and then you go into this thing and put this white stuff all over. I don't even know what it was, maybe salt or, Epsom or something. That was, I just watched what everyone did. I couldn't talk to anybody. So I rolled around in it with them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're all naked. And then we walked through this thing where there's this automatic shower that takes all the white stuff off. And then the next step is this icy cold plunge. That's <laughs> and then there was this outdoor thing where you could stand or sit under this really warm, soothing waterfall. <laughs> so blissful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a nice way to enter. It was especially a nice way to leave Asia, you know, to kind of feel cleansed and uh, renewed before coming back to sterile America <laughs> or Europe. Um, and. Another description of this showering joy is uh, like lying on a beach and, and waves, warm water waves, like Hawaiian water, <laughs> washing over the body. And you just feel that the surge, you know, come and go. And that feeling, that's how it's described. It's a really great description. The fourth is transporting or uplifting joy. That can, it's very, that can be very kinesthetic meditative experience. People suddenly feel their spine automatically straighten up and as if there's a pull upwards. Or it's that real porous feeling where your body sensations are so subtle, molecular again, as we were saying this morning, you feel you could put your hand through your body and it's just sort of, it's light and, and indeed transporting, you know? So it's like uh, the opposite of the sense of gravity. And the fifth, and perhaps the most important one in terms of insight, um, because it begins to take us away from the vulnerability to that enchantment, to that trap of stopping within, is all pervading, suffusing, where 
it actually starts to feel like a settled, peaceful, more calm, abiding joy. Because now it's integrated with insight awareness. There's less vulnerability to the attachment, so it stays and helps sustain the interest in a calmer way, and that more that awe, like the men and women of the Hokulea when they came into the harbor of Rapa Nui. This subtle kind of pleasure is really good for practice, and it's really good for life. Because it's not dependent on the external environment. It's not dependent on things outside of ourselves, difficult situations in the world, at work, in relationships, and so forth. It arises out of itself. It arises out of the awareness. It arises out of sneen, clearly. So it's a great beauty, this happiness of concentration, this, this piti that comes up. If we escape the enchantment trap, if we, think, if we don't think we finish practice and roll up the mat and go home, then this insight of arising and passing away, in the Pali it's called Udaya Bhaya, arising and passing, Jnana, insight, understanding. It matures, delivering us from that, that, that vulnerability of attachment um, or sometimes it's called corruption of insight. Corruption because it is an insight. I, I mean insight because it's an insight. Corruption because there's an attachment to the, the accompanying Dhamma pleasures. So to reach the mature end, uh, the PT again, like the applied awareness and sustained awareness, recedes, becomes more integrated, in a natural part of the knowing awareness. And what now comes forward, what now predominates, is sukha. The word meaning opposite of dukkha. Stress-free. Deep comfort, rather than any kind of discomfort. The whole mind and body. Suddenly, again, that sense of dropping into this place of contentment. This is a happiness of contentment. Like it's just okay as it is. This deeper, more subtle awareness, uh, the craving and attachment, the subtle craving and attachment falling away. The deeper our practice gets, the more tricky and the more subtle attachment and craving. Keep that in mind. It, it, it'll follow us along all the way. It doesn't fall away until entire enlightenment. Some degree of craving. It just gets subtler. And we have to be more, you know, attuned to it. So this is a Dhamma pleasure that, uh, that doesn't replace. You know, PT still is playing an important role. It's keeping a buoyancy to our awareness. But added to that now is a, is a contentment. Balancing that is a contentment. We turn that awareness on, on the piti, you know, as at its mature, you know, as we s start to leave the arising and passing tender stage into the mature stage, we see that the piti is pleasurable and beautiful and wonderful it is that to, to rest in it is subtly agitating. And the, the mature end of this insight of seeing arising and passing, of seeing the nature of things, of seeing dhamma, the law of dhamma, is not agitating. Deeply contenting. The body feels good. The mind feels good. The body and mind feel one. The connection with everything around us feels one. Focus is natural. Easy awareness. It's just there. This is a stage of energy Joseph was talking about that becomes more, it, it is effortless. You know, it's like being 
It's like a satellite just cruising around the planet, powered by the gravity of the planet. So there's this a we're now such in the current of Dhamma itself and sort of have surrendered trying to make things happen or not happen that so easily the mind rests moment to moment with whatever is coming up with ease. People often feel they can sit for long periods of time, often in comfort, but just as often sometimes with pain, but not disturbed by it. And sit a long time with this calm demeanor, with this contentment, even with painful sensations, no reaction, very little response. It's noticed as unpleasant, but this is the coolness with it. And there's a scene that this pain, or just little units of sensation appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing. When the insight is there, as when insight awareness is engaged with momentary experience, everything is okay. Everything feels okay. Even if it's difficult, it feels okay. If it's painful, it feels okay. The strong attitude of non-attachment to Dhamma pleasures. Equanimity gets quite strong here. Same thing. Equanimity, non-attachment, non-reactiveness. Same thing, same thing. Different words, same thing. When an early practice uh, period 20 years ago with Sayadaw, with Pandita, I went into... I I started to experience these Dhamma pleasures and, and there was a, 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 this corruption of insight, subtle attachment I didn't see. I didn't see and so I was so happy to come and report to him every day. I'm feeling blissful sensations. Everything feels like cotton, like silk, like I'm walking on clouds, like I'm floating. Mental, mental sensations, same, you know, lovely emotions, feelings of, of connection and kindness and joy and come back, same report, come back, same report. At last he says, you know, you just want to stay here? Is it satisfactory to you? And my first response was yes. (laughs) (laughs) So he gave me an instruction of resolving to attend only to the feeling tone, that second foundation of mindfulness, the Vedana Nupasana, seeing clearly the moment-to-moment nature of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. I made that resolve. <clears throat> and for several days, that's what I did. You know, my mind would go and feel sensations, my mind would go and notice thoughts, but, you know, I would remake that resolve, and mostly I was noticing every waking hour in, through that lens, through the anchoring in pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone. By the third day, these blissful sensations, you know, I had an insight. And, and for, at that particular time, remember, it's the same, same Dhamma, same insight, three facets, so you can experience their changing nature, which watching feelings is a really good practice to do for that. You can see the emptiness. You can see anatta. But for me, I, the insight at that moment was dukkha. But I didn't feel pain. Was it? Duked out. It was dukkha because it wasn't reliable. It wasn't lasting. Those joyful, pleasant, rapturous sensations were so ephemeral and so not self and so unsolid, nothing to rely upon, you know, even these Dhamma pleasures, that there was this sort of letting, letting go. And, 
And the result of that insight, even though it was seen their dukkha nature, their unreliability, was this deep calm, was a contentment. You know, you keep, you keep hearing us say, this letting go, this letting go. It's not a good instruction to say, to tell you to let go. <laughs> because then you'll try. And if we try to let go, we're actually holding on. What then does let go? Awareness lets go. Satipanya, awareness and wisdom. That wisdom awareness. That's what lets go. Why? Because it sees clearly. There's no intention to let go. The very knowing, the very mindful, insightful knowing stops clinging. So uh, you, to hear these instructions, you know, I don't know how you can hold it, but hold it more spaciously and more as an attitude to surrender to, not try. Don't try anything. You get in trouble. These two insights, happiness of concentration, happiness of contentment, these two, the, the tender early stages of insight of arising and passing, the mature, non-attached level of arising and passing, they're pivotal significant points in practice. The, our teachers and the texts, the Buddha's own words, say the reason they're pivotal is because this fulfilling this insight, or this insight emerging, this insight viscerally on a cellular level kind of filling our sense of being, our awareness, causes one never to be lost from the path. We may stray, we may forget, we may stop sitting for 10 years, 20 years, but that, that this insight creates a, such a potent seed that when it's watered again, it emerges, it grows. So it's said that this is like lifting our arms. At some point, the arm's going to come down. The analogy is this is like imprinting the vision of the island in mind to such a degree it'll never be forgotten. And our Voyage, however mysterious and however many side trips or how way we're waylaid by the turbulent systems, we're going to get there. We're going to pull the island out of the sea. The Buddha said about this. Also said, the sutras also say it's this, it's the sweetest happiness. This happiness of contentment and the culmination of that insight that involves happiness of concentration, happiness of contentment, the tender and mature. And the last insight I'm going to talk about for of the many insights, but a very culminating one, uh, is brings forth the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. Here, Sukha recedes, merges with our knowing awareness, now no longer predominant. What becomes predominant is this equanimity in the Pali Upeka, this centeredness, this being in the midst of all formations, I, what I've called before bamboo mind. You know, the bamboo that bends toward the pleasurable, comes back. Bends, ret uh, retracts from the repulsive or unpleasurable, but its nature is to come back to center. Equanimity is a deep wisdom insight. 
because it's a capacity of, of our awareness to be with uh, the extreme ranges of pain, sorrow, difficulty. On the one hand, joy, happiness, peace, on the other hand. To hold it all. To be in that tension arc with peace, with a wide mind, deep serenity, unreactive, non-reactive, generally non-reactive, but let's say, you know, uh, fluid. It's very supple. Don't like to use words that imply, you know, we're just cold. It's not indifference. It's deeply connected to life as it is. Deeply caring. But just seeing clearly and responsive to life. In the 70s, I was practicing with Munindraji in Budgaya. He set me up at the temple, Japanese temple, because it was a nice place to stay. And they also had a, <laughs> a furo, a hot bath. And I got to be friends with the abbot there, Shibuya-san, a young, energetic, really dedicated to practice, and could not be bothered with the politics in, in Tokyo because the temple also was a guest house for visiting Japanese who came as tourists and partied with sake and cigarettes and, you know, wanting to have a good time. And this really, he, he, didn't, like, he didn't like that, but, you know, the authorities in, in Tokyo were, put a lot of pressure on him. He was very busy. He worked all day long. There was a beautiful Zen garden and ponds and rushes and stones, the rake grass, all of that, a school for children, you know, a charity school. And the um, uh, and the guest house. So I had a room in the guest house, uh, and uh, it, it, he'd work till ten o'clock at night. He'd sleep for four hours, get up at two, and sit to six, one sitting. So I I did my practice and kind of arranged my schedule around. So I'd sleep at those hours, and I'd sit with him. The two of us would go into the temple. It was hot season. Lifted up this sort of medieval-like wooden trap door and uh, right in the center by the altar in the temple and walk down these steps and close it down into it and we walk into a dungeon that was cool. You know, literally really cool. Have some candles and sit. <laughs> and I, and I, I love that because he's, his dedication was such that he sat Buddha-like without moving for four hours. How do I know? I kept looking. <laughs> any sign, you know, I was looking for any flaw of, of humanity so I could feel better about myself. But he sat like that, he sat like that, and we did this for months. And then he had a real bad day. The authorities had visited and said he wasn't taking care of the pilgrims enough. And he couldn't, couldn't be bothered. All the cigarettes and sake bottles and so, but he, you know, listened and he did his duty and what he loved was practice. And every evening at uh, six, and every morning at 6 a.m., there'd be uh, Westerners coming out from Bogaya, uh, anywhere from 12, a dozen to 20-something. Uh, we'd sit, do a little walking, do a little chanting, and, um, and then either go home or in the morning, we'd go out to the corner of the temple, bow down toward the Bodhi, Bodhi of the Buddha, under which he was enlightened, the relative of the tree which, under which he was enlightened, and the great majestic Mahabodhi temple few hundred yards away. Uh, so this one day, he had a bad day. And we met as usual, two o'clock, went down in the dungeon, began to sit. I didn't know he had a bad day. And I'm sitting along and start my peaks, you know, looking at him. For the very first time, I saw him nod a bit. <laughs> and I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> 
every 20 minutes or so I'd watch and his, his nodding kept going lower and lower and lower for four hours kind of like watching the hour hand of a clock you know <laughs> I couldn't quite see the movement but I went down 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 and then right at six o'clock just a millimeter from his head touching the the, the ground he stood up straight rang the bell we went upstairs, the, the yogis from Bodh Gaya, from the other guest houses in the Burmese Vihara and the Thai temple and whatnot, they were all there and we did our sitting. We went out, paid, started to pay respects. He's first in line at the corner and uh, uh, behind them was a visiting monk from Japan and then myself and then a dozen or so Westerners. What would happen, we bow, and then he turned to each of us and bow, say, oh, how gazimus, good morning. Um, and it was, was it this, I think it was hot season March, it was full moon. It was just setting and the sun just rising. So we could see out in the darkness in the Zen garden. And out there were a good half dozen, eight, Japanese tourists with their cameras, ready to capture this spiritual moment. And they were standing in the raked sand, <laughs> standing on the rock, in the rushes. You know, one had the foot, the part of their feet in the pond. And <laughs> so I thought, oh, yeah. I didn't think much of it. So it started to bow. Halfway down the bow, I thought there was an earthquake. <laughs> there was just this ferocious lion's roar. I felt like the temple was shaking. I felt like the sky was fragmenting. I felt like <laughs> the Bodhi tree seemed to waver. And this, just this immense power came out of this really gentle, small, diminutive Zen master. And it was like throwing a huge stone in a small pond. There was this instant scattering of the tourists. <laughs> Cameras flying everywhere, film falling all over the place. And in a moment, they vanished. And they were, just, and they were left with this frightening silence. <laughs> then he finished his bow. He did this halfway through the bow, completed the bow, came back up, turned around to the monk and bowed to the monk. And, and then he and said, oh, how is And I was terrified because usually he'd look right in the eye. And I didn't want to look at him. <laughs> Just bowed. And he stayed bowing. So I knew I had to look at him. So finally I looked at him, and there was this lovely twinkle in his <laughs> eyes, <laughs> and a reflection of the setting moon and the rising sun, you know, and this, this mischievous smile, you know. <laughs> and in that moment, it just captured the power of equanimity, you know, in which fierce compassion, life-shattering, changing energy that can shift what is perceived as inappropriate, you know, or unskillful behavior uh, arises out of this total balance of mind. There was no trace on his face of any disturbance. <laughs> I loved him. <laughs> These are the happinesses and, and insights, the happiness of Solitude, the mind secluded from the hindrances, the first taste of seeing changing nature, uh, the unsatisfactory nature, the empty nature of things, and happiness of concentration, more protected, the early arising and passing, of uh, feeling the incredible joy, the joy of youth, the joy of the zest of our childhood that we may have forgotten, lost. And then the mature, Contentment, happiness of contentment, where this 
comes forward this deep calm, body-mind calm, ease of being, lightness of being, okay with things, long periods of, of being mindful. And then this immense shift into this really wide mind of serenity that's able to hold with wisdom and equanimity all that is, you know, things as they are, this glow of equanimity, this deep sense of, of, of centeredness in life. No more, you know, um, needing experience to be different. All these insights, all these kinds of happinesses we experience again and again, and this begins to be a carryover in our daily life. Begin to be able to access them more and more, patiently. It's a cycle, you know, it's not linear. It's not, we don't go up a ladder. It cycles around and around and around. And then there's, in this last minute, another happiness. It's the happiness of liberation. It's the happiness of touching the unconditioned. The mind that opens to what is not born, therefore does not die. It's not constructed and therefore is not deconstructed. It doesn't arise, therefore it doesn't pass away. A place beyond life and death. The fulfillment, the completion pulling the ultimate island out of the sea. May our practice all lead to the happiness of complete peace an appreciation of the mystery and the grace of the journey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.